Thank you, Vanessa. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Come forth to the altar, my son, and repent. There's room at the altar for one more. <laughs> Just as I am with a heart one plea. Well, I hope you're all in a good mood this morning. If you're not in a good mood, consider the fact that while you were sleeping, 15,000 people on the planet died, and you were one of them. So smile. <laughs> if you're not six feet under or dust to the wind, you got something to be happy about. So we're here, and uh, it's good. It's good. So I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Wilton Hills Church. Uh, and it's just, it's great to worship with you, uh, have to be in the presence of God, and then now uh, to crack open his word. We're uh, in a series that we're calling Twisted Scripture. It's about scripture that we believe uh, has gotten largely twisted as uh, it's been kind of repeated and believed out in the broader uh, evangelical Christian world. Um, and so we're, we're, we're looking at what, what do these passages mean when we put them in context. We're finding that very frequently uh, the meaning of a passage means the opposite of what it's taken to mean out in the general populace. It's always important to put things in context. So last week we dealt with Romans 9, which I believe is the single mis- most misunderstood passage in the Bible. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of Job and a certain passage in chapter 1, which is, in my opinion, a close second uh, to, to Romans 9 in terms of its misunderstanding. In fact, my honest conviction is that the book of Job is the single most misunderstood book in the Bible. And uh, I'm going to be trying to show that here this morning. Before we get into it, let's, let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for everybody in this congregation, for your love for them and the way you've been working in their life from, from, from the get-go. Uh, and that's brought them to this point. And I thank you for all of our pod parishioners. And I pray blessing on them. Whatever they're doing, whatever part of the world they're in, I just pray, God, that you'll use this word to uh, instruct, inform, inspire, motivate, maybe convict them. And Lord, now will you infuse this word with your authority to help us understand this uh, scripture. And Holy Spirit, use it, I pray most importantly, to purge from our mind any residue of any, any suspicion, any hint that you are less beautiful than you're revealed to be in Christ. And um, that your love is, is, is a, a less beautiful than it's revealed to be in Christ. And Lord, just uh, deepen our relationship with you, our commitment to you, our surrender to you as we sang here this morning that we might be pouring out our all for you as you poured your all out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so the context is this. As a lot of you know, in the book of Job, uh, Job gets hammered by Satan, and he ends up losing his seven sons. They all die, and his three daughters, they all die. He gets all his possessions wiped away, all his cattle, everything. The only thing that remains is his wife, and that was not a blessing. Um, <laughs> Job was thinking, can we do a trade here? Uh, one of my sons for my wife. She's the one who says, curse God and die, Job. Great, 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 great asset there. So um, this, is, this is a nightmare situation. And then we have this response on the part of Job, chapter 1. They're running the aisles this morning, I'll tell you. Uh, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell upon the ground. That's, that's standard ancient Near Eastern way of grieving. Uh, and, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Is it the case that we're to believe that every blessing we have is the Lord giving, but every loss we have is the Lord taking? This passage is usually quoted in times of catastrophe. I remember... 
about 12, 13 years ago, maybe you recall this, it was on the, in the Pioneer Press, uh, the, the headlines were, The Lord Gives and the Lord Takes. There's a photograph of a man speaking at a funeral, and it was the funeral of his five children. And what had happened is his wife had gone into some kind of postpartum uh, depression, craziness or psychosis, and had, had uh, drowned the, the five children in the bathtub. Remarkably, I don't understand this, but she was tried as a sane adult and is now serving life in prison. But um, the husband, coming out of the background in theology that he came out of, in the funeral he says, the Lord gave us these five beautiful children, and now the Lord has taken these five beautiful children. Immediately I'm thinking, well then, why isn't God on trial? Uh, if the Lord is the one who did it, why blame the woman? But is that, was that an appropriate use of this verse? Is, that what, is the verse telling us that this is what we should believe and what we should say. There's a lady I knew a number of years ago now, and, and she gave me this testimony that she and her husband had trouble conceiving of a child. For years and years they had tried, and the doctor said it's very unlikely, if not impossible, for you to have children based on some biological things. But just at the point where they're about ready to give up on this, they, she actually conceives. And she goes everywhere and testifies to everybody about how God had answered their prayer and miraculously given her this, 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 this baby. And then in the process of giving birth to this baby, the baby was breached and the cord was wrapped around its neck and there's a number of complications that led to the baby being stillborn. And so this lady's question, of course, is why would God do this? That was her belief at the time. And she goes to the doctor of theology, a local college here, and asks why would God take me to the pinnacle of joy and supernaturally answering this prayer and then draw me to the pit of hell by taking the baby in the process of childbirth? Why? And his answer was, well, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes, and blessed be the name of the Lord. And everything the Lord does is good and wise, and so we must just praise him because this was good and wise. And perhaps there's a lesson that he wants to teach you out of this. And as a result of that counsel, she walked away from the faith for eight years. When I had met her, I spoke at a, a different church, and, and she was just trying to come back to the faith. And, but her question to me was, what would my response be to this? And see, if you, the picture of God that this presupposes, I mean, just enter into this. God gives you a baby. Oh, the joy. Supernatural. Wow. And then just as you're about ready to give birth to this child, he takes it. Nope, I take it back. Why? Because there's a lesson you're supposed to learn. Though I'm not going to tell you what the lesson is. What kind of pedagogy is that? It sounds, I'm going to kill your kid to teach you a lesson, and you've got to figure out what the lesson is. And meanwhile, all sorts of ladies who don't want children or who are on crack cocaine or whatever, they get to have babies, but you don't because there's a lesson you're supposed to learn, and so figure it out. This is an Al Capone picture of God. But you can see why you know, it seems to come from this verse. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. So the question is, how are we to interpret this thing? Well, I, I'm going to suggest to you that if we put it in the context of this whole book, this is another example of a passage which is meant to mean the opposite of the way it's taken. Put it into original context. It's not advocating that this is a theology that we're supposed to believe. It's the book's telling us this is a theology we're supposed to reject. Okay, so I'm going to have to go to an overview of the whole book to make this point. So put in your thinking caps. Hang with me. It's going to be intense. It's going to be an adventure. So here we go. First thing you got to ask, as a part of the biggest context, is to say what kind of book are we dealing with? What kind of literature are we dealing with? Because you don't interpret uh, you know, political cartoons the way you interpret a legal document or, or read a historical narrative. No, you, you have to look at the kind of literature you're dealing with. Most scholars argue that the, the book of Job is, is under the genre of uh, an epic, an ancient epic dramatic poem. Ancient epic dramatic poem. Um, 
If you read the book of Job and look at how the people talk there, it's not the way people normally talk. They, it's very poetic. It's very lyrical. It's very dramatic. It doesn't mean that it's not anchored in historical events. It very, very well may be. But that's not the important point. The point is, how, what lesson is the author teaching us by dramatizing these events, putting it in this poetic form? And like many ancient epic poems, Job has a prologue. Many of these, these, these works have a prologue. You find this a lot in ancient tra- uh, Greek tragedies. Uh, and the prologue is there to set up the storyline. And the way the, the prologue in Job sets up the storyline is it lets us in on a secret that the characters in the book don't know about. We learn about this conflict between God and Satan, and the characters in the book never do. And that's important because we'll see here that one of the most fundamental points of the book of Job is to teach us how much we don't know. We're, 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 we, we are like the characters in this, in this book, um, and we don't know why, why this happened to Job. They never, they never find that out. And highlighting our vast, massive ignorance is one of the main points of this book. Okay, so uh, this is the, and the main point of, of looking at this genre is this. Given the kind of literature it is, it's important, it's like a parable, pay attention to the main point that's being made, and don't get bogged down in the details. The details are just there to make the main point. Uh, and so in the prologue, for example, it's important to, to ask, what's the main lesson we're learning here? We know something that the, the people in the uh, narrative don't know. But I wouldn't draw the conclusion, as some have drawn, that uh, because in this prologue, Satan has to get permission from God to afflict Job, some conclude, well, then Satan always has to get permission for whatever he does. So then you get a picture of Satan going up before God all the time saying, hey, uh, can I have this little girl raped? Uh, yes, you can do that. Okay, then, then that happens. Can I let this family die in a car? No, I want to protect them. Uh, can I uh, cause these people to be gas in the gas chamber? Yeah, yeah, you can do that one. Well, can I here just prevent this person from getting a parking space? No, I want them to have that parking space. And so everything that Satan's doing, it's like a mother may I contest. Can I do this? Can I do this? Which puts God in the position of being the, the yes or no person who then he's implicated in all the evil of the world. It must be because he wants it to be done. And, and I, I, I think you're just reading too much into this, the narrative doesn't say that this is what always happens. It's just setting up the storyline in this case. Look, you don't have to ask God for permission for every particular thing you do, good or evil. You've got a sort of a carte block permission because you've got free will. It's in your power to go this way or that way. There's your permission, but it's not a specific mother may I. And certainly isn't the case that God wants you to do the bad stuff you do. No, that's on you. Well, Satan's far more powerful than you, so why think that he has to get this specific permission for everything he does? So look at the main point of the storyline and, and don't get bogged down in the details. We'll see there's a number of other things in this prologue, which if you are taking it literally and getting, looking at details, it would screw up your theology in some massive ways. So here's what the prologue says. It starts with this. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The sons of God is just a Hebrew concept for the angels that are in God's court. You read about this heavenly council a lot in the Old Testament. God is something like a council meeting with his, his, his co-workers who are there to carry out his will. These are the sons of God. But Satan also came. And that's implying that Satan wasn't one of these good angels that show up in, in God's heavenly court. No, he's a renegade who just happens to be there. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, oh, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. Now notice this. Satan shows up, and it's clear he's not one of the sons of God, because not only is he not under God's authority, but God has to ask him where he's been. Now, don't draw the metaphysical conclusion that, oh, doesn't God know where everything is? Remember, it's like a parable. It's there to show that Satan is a renegade. 
God's, he got far from being under God's authority. He's just doing his own thing. God doesn't even know where he's been. And the way Satan answers that confirms that. Where you been? He basically says, none of your business. I'm going to and fro. I'm walking about doing my own thing, causing mischief wherever I want. So it's like, you know, you've got no authority over me. That's, that's the basic gist of this. And the point to note about that is this. Satan just crashed the party. It wasn't part of some plan. God didn't plan him to be there. God didn't even know where he came from. He just shows up. This wasn't part of some cosmic plan. And so all the things that ensue from the, this encounter, all of Job's suffering, it wasn't part of some cosmic plan. And that already tells you that this isn't just a matter of God saying, oh, I'm going to ordain that. I give it to you and then I take it away. No, this is a random thing. Satan just chooses to show up and crash this party for reasons we'll see here in a moment. It was a random thing, and that's part of the point of the book. Random things, free agents in the, in the spiritual realm, do things, cause conflict, that can sometimes have catastrophic effects on us, and we never saw it coming, and we never know about it. Random stuff. It just happens. Stuff happens. And, and, and we, being ignorant little human beings, we don't ever know about it. And that will become very important for us to remember here in a little bit. And once Satan just shows up, crashes this party, a, a kind of spiritual warfare ensues. God brags on Job. What a righteous guy Job is. Uh, and, and it's kind of flaunting the righteousness of Job in the face of Satan's evil. But then look what Satan says. He goes, do you think that Job fears you for nothing, honors you, reverences you for nothing? Have you not put a hedge about him and his house and all that he has? There's apparently been a hedge of protection that God's had around Job. And why is that hedge there? Well, because Satan is running to and fro. Okay, so there's been a hedge of protection. And then he says, you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But, but if you put forth your hand now and touch all he has, destroy all he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, folks, Satan here is throwing down the gauntlet because what's going on here is he's, he's, he's making a charge against God's character. He says, God, it's no, not surprising that Job honors you. Look at all the benefits he gets. And what's at stake in this is the question, does anyone worship God because he's God? Does anyone worship God for free? And most importantly, is God a Machiavellian control freak? Is God a manipulator? Is God just moving us around like little puzzles, you know, little puzzle pieces, uh, throwing out little benefits here and, and warnings over here to corral us into doing what he wants us to do? So now there's a character assault on God in the heavenly realms as before the entire angelic host, which is why Satan crashed this party. It's a public slander. You are a Machiavellian control freak. Now in the context of this literature, how can this question be answered? Before the angelic host and now before the audience, because we're in on the secret, uh, the question is, is God in fact a Machiavellian control freak? Does anyone worship God for free? Are human beings free? Do we really make choices? Or are we just being manipulated? Now, how can the question be answered in the context of this prologue? If, if God was to just incinerate Satan, well, that would totally prove that Satan was right. He is a Machiavellian control freak. Look what he does to the opposition. If God was to just ignore him, well, that would at least leave the question open and would kind of give the impression that maybe he is telling the truth. He is a Machiavellian control freak. In the context of this narrative, the the, the, the question, the challenge, can only be answered by being put to a test. Let's see. Let's, let's play this out. What happens when Job loses everything? Now, Satan wants God to do it. 
You put forth your hand and touch all he has. But God doesn't do that. He's not that kind of God. What he does is he lifts that hedge of protection. It's an unfortunate necessity given the, the, the verbal cosmic warfare that's going on here. But he has, in, this, in the context of this prologue, no choice but to lift that hedge of protection. But he says, he's in your power. Here's how it reads. Everything he has is, behold, it's in your power. Which means it's on you. This is what you want to do anyways. That's why the hedge was there. You're trying to get to him. No, I'm going to let you do what you want to do, but it's on you. It's not on God. Only upon himself, his health, you can't put forth your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and did, did all this. So notice, it's not God who's doing the taking. It, it, this is a Satan thing. It's on him. In fact, far from God doing the taking, Satan has to go out from the presence of God to do his nasty stuff. Now, don't draw the metaphysical conclusion that God isn't everywhere. Isn't, I thought God was omnipresent. Remember the kind of literature you're dealing with. It's just there to show, to put a distance between God and his presence in the heavenly realm and the disaster that, that happens to Job. So it ends up being this. Job is, is, becomes the unfortunate victim caught in the crossfire of this cosmic battle where God's character is at stake, though he doesn't know that. And he's suffering precisely because he's righteous. Precisely because he was the most righteous person in the land, he now is going to suffer and never know why. And that's part of the point of this book as well. It's challenging this ancient wisdom, or supposed wisdom, that's still around very much today, that says, if things are going well, that's because God is favoring you, and if things are going bad, that's because God is judging you. And that's been around since day one. And this book, this profound book, I've read this book every year, at least once, sometimes up to four or five times for the last 23 years, and it is so profound. It is taking that head on. It's challenging that. In fact, it's going to turn it all on its head. Because now we're going to have a guy who suffers precisely because he's righteous. And what's at stake here? Well, Job is being called to vindicate the character of God before the heavenly realm. To prove that human beings are free and we worship God, not because, we're manip- because we're, he's manipulating us, but just because he's God. So he's, but he doesn't know that. Which tells us that things can happen in the spiritual realm that affect us greatly and a whole lot can be at stake Far more than we know and how we respond to those situations. Because we human beings are vastly ignorant of this. Now, here's the thing. you got to know that there's two competing theologies that are at play here in the book of Job. On the one hand, we just saw Satan's theology. God is a Machiavellian, manipulative, control freak. A puppeteer God. And then we have God's theology that he gives at the end of the book of Job. We'll look at both of them. Satan's theology is actually shared by both Job's friends and Job. They both assume, in different ways, that God is pulling all the strings. Job's friends believe it this way. They think that God's pulling all the strings, but God is just. And if God is just, then that means Job is being punished. And so throughout the book of Job, they're always saying, Job, you deserve this. Own up to it. There's some sin in your life, and God's punishing you. And Job's always pushing back on that. And so we read throughout this book, things like this. Uh, one friend says to Job early on, Hey, think, Job. Come on now. Reflect a little bit here. Who that was innocent ever perished? And, who, and where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And by the breath of God, they perish. And by the blast of his answer, they are consumed. That's what's happening to you, Job. Now think about this. I mean, this is the kind of thing you, that comes out of the mouth of these friends all the time. And uh, actually, folks, it sounds... All too evangelical sometimes. Now, where have the innocent ever perished? Well, you know, I can think of a few examples. 
Like, like every kid that ever got killed or had a disease or cancer before the age of nine or so, uh, that'd be an innocent for someone perishing. And where were the upright ever cut off? Well, Jesus comes to mind as all the apostles. In fact, it seems that righteous people get cut off quite a bit. So what planet is this guy from? Where is his head buried in the sand? But see, it, it's, it illustrates how selective we can look at the world when we really, 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 really want to believe something badly. It jaundices our perception of the world. This is the most inaccurate statement you can imagine, and yet this guy's living in a la-la land because that's the land he wants to live in. Job, in chapter 6, accuses his friends of speaking out of their fear. He says, you're speaking out of your fear. And he's right. See, they want the security. They want to believe. God's pulling all the strings, but they're righteous. And since they're righteous, nothing bad will ever happen to them. And they can feel good about all of the blessings they have because they come right from God. Uh, and, and, and so if Job is righteous and suffering, the fear is that what happened to Job could easily happen to them. If this is really a random thing, then no one is safe. It could happen to us. And so we want to grab onto these formulas that will protect us. If I just believe this, if I just say this, if I just do this, if I just avoid this sin, well, then God will bless me and I'll have a hedge of protection and my, nothing bad will ever happen to my kids. But we grab onto these formulas thinking that we, we have the right key, the righteousness or whatever to, to, to hold on to this. But see, in doing that, we just indicted everybody who ever had anything bad happen to their kids. If, I, if the reason why I'm safe is because I'm righteous, well, then the reason why your kid died was because you weren't. And so formulate theologies always indict people. That's why when God shows up in the end, and we'll see this later on, he's really, really mad at Job's friends. He, he's ticked off about this. But this is, they're holding on out of their self-serving theology. They want to believe this. Now, their theology is all jacked. I hope you see that. You know, you, you know it's, it's wrong because it, Jesus, who is the central revelation of God, he refutes it at every turn in his ministry. Jesus is always confronting people who are in pain, people who have uh, uh, diseases and, and are blind and have infirmities, and never once does he ever suggest that God's doing that to them. Never once does he suggest that these people deserve this. He treats people as casualties of war. And it reveals the character of God by coming against this stuff. God's not on the side of the disease. He's on the side of the healing. And, and then there's a point in Jesus' ministry in Luke 13 where uh, he's, these people got killed by this tower that fell on them. Eighteen people got killed. And Jesus says to the crowd, Do you think that they were worse sinners than, than you or anyone else in Jerusalem? No. But here's what you ought to be worried about. If you don't repent, you'll all perish. And he's simply saying, Don't go trying to read the character or will of God on the basis of life's tragedies like some kind of tea leaf thing. No, what you ought to be worried about is your own relationships with God. So that refused, completely refused this idea that you can know who God, God is punishing by how bad things are going in, in someone's life. So Jesus refutes it. God also refutes it when he shows up at the end. He doesn't at all suggest that, you know what, I can do whatever I want, I'm God, and, and so I can just meet it out however I want, and since I do it, it must be just, and you just got to grin and bear it. He doesn't suggest that. What he does, and we'll see this explicitly here in a little bit, is he just asks a bunch of questions that reveal Job's ignorance. Uh, it, 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 how little they, Job or anyone else knows about what is going on. And, um, and, and he, God refutes it by chastising the three friends. He says this. Here's God's reputation. He goes, my anger is stirred up against you, talking to Eliphaz, one of the friends, and your two friends, because you have not spoken about me what is right. So what they said was wrong. Much of the book espouses their theology, or records them espousing their theology, but it's not meant to be something we're supposed to believe. It's something we're not supposed to believe, because it's wrong. Now, that doesn't mean everything they say is wrong, because some of the stuff they say is right. 
This book is far too profound to just paint things in black and white terms. Some of what the friends say and some of what Job says is right, but it's mixed in with a bunch of stuff that doesn't reflect the true theology. It reflects the Machiavellian Satan theology because they're attributing everything to God and therefore blaming uh, the victim. So Job also shares this assumption. Everything that happens is, is God's doing. But he will not agree that he is more sinful than his friends or anyone else. And so the only conclusion he could draw is that God is cruel, God is arbitrary, God is unjust. He's pulling all the strings. But see, at first he says it very nicely, very piously. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all God's doing. But we're going to see here now, as his pain increases, as it intensifies, as, his, as despair sets in on him, he says that same thing, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. But now, whereas initially he didn't charge God with any wrongdoing, he begins to charge God with a lot of wrongdoing. So, for example, in chapter 9, he says, The Lord crushes me with a, with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Well, the Lord takes, but now it's not so pious, is it? Without cause, he's, he's charging God with wrongdoing. And then he says, He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He's, he's, he's amoral. He's got no sense of justice at all. That's not very nice to say about God. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Really? Is there, are we supposed to believe that? God mocks at the calamity of the innocent? Uh, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? Now look at this here. Job can't even consider the possibility that the judges themselves have made themselves wicked and don't judge justly. He assumes that if the faces of the judges are covered, if they can't see justice, well, then it must be God doing it. He's holding to the Machiavellian view of God. God's the puppeteer pulling all the strings. Only now, see, as Job's pain intensifies, he gets more and more ruthlessly, logically consistent with that assumption. If God, in fact, is pulling all the strings, well, then God is unjust. Evidence of it is that the judges don't judge justly, and so the innocent fight themselves out on the street, so God must be mocking the innocent, laughing at them because he's the one who did it. Is that stuff we're supposed to actually believe? I don't think so. A little bit later on, he says this. Does it please you, God, to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? Are you, get, are you enjoying yourself up there as you're tormenting me and approving of the wicked because you're the ones who are, you're the one who's making them that way? And then he goes on to say, your hands fashioned and made me and now you have completely destroyed me. The Lord gives, the Lord takes, only now it's not so pious. And then he says, you hunt me as a fierce lion. And again, you display your power against me. That phrase there in Hebrew can actually mean you repeat your exploits against me. He's portraying God as this lion hunting a prey who will not kill the prey quickly. He toys with it, torments him, then finally kills him. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger against me. Leave me alone, he finally says, that I may have a little comfort. Now see, is this stuff we're supposed to be approving of? Taking out of context, this is the word of God. God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. So we should just, you know, have a sermon. Hey, you guys, let's all pray. God, leave us alone so we can have a little comfort. No, we're not supposed to be approving of this. This is, this is bad theology, not right theology. And who, after all, is the roaring lion who roams the earth seeking whom he may devour? Job here is seeing God as Satan, who's just tormenting him uh, and, 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 and playing with him like a little prey. And then he goes on to say, his anger has torn me and persecuted me. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. <laughs> My adversary locks his eyes on me. His gaze. His... <laughs> get the, get the, this is how Job is picturing God. Which is perfectly appropriate if God is doing all this. He's absolutely right if God's doing all this. 
But see, neither he nor his friends know about this heavenly battle, and, and, and so they just attribute it all to God. And I found in, in my life that to the degree that people don't take Satan and evil of others seriously, they end up attributing this stuff to God, because what other alternative is there? He's, he's portraying God as Satan, the adversary. My adversary locks his eyes on me with his eyes of hate, gnashing his teeth. He's a monster. This is a monster God. And then he goes on to say this. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? Given the character of God, why should we ever serve him? He's got a point if God is this Machiavellian God. And what would we gain if we were to pray to him? Take, take that out of context. Hey, you guys, here's a sermon. There's no purpose to prayer. Prayer does nothing. Go home. Don't pray. No, no, it's in the word of God, but not because we're supposed to believe this. And finally, he says this. From, from the city, uh, the dying groan and the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. He's an amoral God. How could he charge anyone with wrongdoing when he's the one doing it? He blinds the judges so the innocent can throw it on the street and the dying are groaning. And God does not give a rip. I said it was finally, but this is the finally. Chapter 30, with great power, God grasps me by the clothing. He binds me like the, by the color of my tunic. He's choking me, basically, he's saying. He chokes me, then he flings me into the mud, and I've come to resemble dust and ashes. God, you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you attack me. Lord gives, Lord takes. Only now, there's a lot of wrongdoing he's charging God with, which is perfectly consistent if you believe that God's doing all the giving and taking. He's just being consistent with this. But see, folks, that refrain over and over again, we find it getting with more and more harsh terms, vicious terms, even calling God Satan, is because we're not to be believing that refrain. That's the refrain that gets refuted in this book. And so we see it refuted in the ministry of Jesus, as I just said. Never once does he charge anyone. Uh, does he say that God is behind their suffering? Or does he blame them? And he gives various teachings that show that you just can't. He collapses that, that line of thinking that says all suffering is the hand of God. He rather diagnoses all these sufferings as coming directly or indirectly from Satan and demons and things like that. And when God shows up, he refutes this theology. He never suggests, Job, I, I have the right to do all of this. See, if God did that, which is how a lot of people interpret this book, he would be confirming the accusation that got this whole thing going. He would be saying, I am in fact a Machiavellian manipulative control freak. What God does instead is he simply exposes Job's ignorance. He starts by saying in 38, Who is this that darkens counsel without understanding? Job, do you know anything? Do you know what's going on? And he talks about the creation. just talks about, asks all these different questions. He just exposes Job's ignorance. Job, you don't know what's going on around here. And then, see, Job gets it, because Job ends up repenting of this theology. He says, he says, I uttered words I did not understand, or things that were too wonderful for me to understand. I repent in dust and ashes. So Job himself repents of the stuff he said. So clearly, this isn't the theology we're supposed to be accepting. This is the theology we should be repenting of. And the point of the book is to expose the error of that theology. How tragic. How tragic that the, the, this model of God that comes out of the mouth of Satan, that he's just the manipulator, giver and taker. The book that was meant to refute that has largely come to be known as the book that endorses that. So we find a father saying it over his five killed, killed children at the funeral. It's just tragic. You've got to ask the question, though, how does Job then vindicate the character of God? If his theology is to a large degree jacked, like his friends are, uh, how does he vindicate the character of God? How does he end up winning? That's the point of this thing, right? That God is not this kind of God. And this brings us to one of the most beautiful, remarkable things about this book. I quoted the passage before when God reams out the friends saying, You did not speak about me, about me what is right. What I now add is this. God then goes on to say, verse 7, 42-7, 7, 
Right after Job repents, in verse 6, God says, you didn't speak about me what is right like my servant Job did. Now the word right is the Hebrew word kun. And it means to align with. Its core meaning is to align with or to be straight. In this context, it can't possibly mean you were aligned with accuracy or truth because Job just repented of it and God just rebuked him for it. And it conflicts with the ministry of Jesus. What it rather means in this context is you spoke to me straight from your gut. You aligned with what was true about you. And what God is saying here is he vindicates the character of God because this guy stayed honest, whereas Job's friends fall back on their fluffy religious talk and self-serving theology that indicted Job and that makes God really mad. Job was honest with God. He kept the lines of communication open throughout the whole book. He, he never just shut up about God, shut him away or whatever. He kept on talking with God, pleading with God, railing against God. And see, here's what it says about the character of God. God sees that language as bad as it was, as almost blasphemous as it was, as vile as it was, as unorthodox as it was, as wrong as it was, God sees that he's speaking from the gut, and God loves that. He's being faithful to his heart. He's not pretending here, and God adores that. This reveals a God who, who loves honesty over accuracy. Even though accuracy is important, what God wants most of all is honesty. He wants an honest relationship with honest people who choose to be in relationship with him. And that is a beautiful characterization. A Machiavellian deity would never do that. A Machiavellian deity would be putting up a little carrot for you to chase after or threatening here so that your behavior is the way the behavior wants, but he doesn't care about what's going on the inside. But this is a God who cares more about what's going on the inside than anything that's on the outside. He just wants reality. A God who just loves reality. He's the opposite of this control freak, manipulative Machiavellian deity. It puts God's character on display, and that's how God is vindicated. And the, the final confirmation of this reading of, of Job is look at what God actually says when he shows up in chapters 38 through 42. He shows up in the whirlwind and talks to Job. And he talks about two things. First, he talks about this unfathomable creation. He doesn't say, I can do whatever I want, because that would just confirm what Satan had alleged against him. He talks about the creation. And he chides Job for two chapters. Read it. It's it's almost playful. He says, Job, you know, do you know anything what's going on around here? Did I consult you when I put the stars in the sky? Do you even know what those things are about? Or let's make it a little simple here. Uh, do you know where, what happens to the dew in the morning? How about the rain? Where does the rain come from? How about the wind? Do you understand where the wind comes from? Do you understand any of the ordinances upon which the world is established? Uh, and what about those animals, all these lovely animals? Do you know why they do what they do? Why the birds fly when they fly? Where they fly? Do you have any idea about this creation? And the answer is no, Job, you don't. And so what God is saying is, Job, if you don't know the first thing about creation, maybe you ought to be a little less quick on the trigger to accuse me of wrongdoing. There's a whole lot going on around here that you don't, aren't aware of. And that's the point of the book. And then he turns to talk about Leviathan and Behemoth, these two creatures. Now, if you read these, these creatures in chapters 40 and 41, read about them, they are not any natural creature you'd find in, in, in the world. I mean, they're, they're tall as cedar tree. They breathe fire. They, smoke comes out of their nostrils. You know, they got these, these iron plates on them. It's, what we know is from reading other ancient Near Eastern literature of the time is that these are monsters that everyone in the, that time believed in, that they believe threatened the earth. They're cosmic monsters. It was their way of portraying evil, their way of portraying Satan. And God's going to speak the language that, that Job understands. So he's going to talk about these forces of evil by talking about Leviathan and Behemoth. And what he does with Leviathan and Behemoth is just what he did with the creation. He asked Job a lot of questions. Job, um, do you think you can do a better job than me on holding these forces of chaos at bay, these forces that threaten the earth that you know about? Um, do, do, why, why don't you go out there and try to tame Leviathan? Good luck with that one. 
Why don't you go out there and try to, to, to uh, conquer Behemoth with your spear? Oh, that's right. He eats iron, <laughs> he says. Uh, you think you could do a better job than me at running this universe? Do you know anything about the, 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 these cosmic beasts? Uh, are you any more powerful than me at, at keeping the forces of chaos at bay? And the answer, of course, is no. And so what God's saying here is this. Until you walk a mile in my shoes, Job, running this thing, putting back these forces of chaos... Uh, maybe you ought to be a, less, a little less quick on the trigger of accusing me of wrongdoing. And even though God never tells Job and his friends about the warfare that led to Job's uh, uh, problems and trials, I mean, he never lets them know about that because that's part of the point of the book. We never find out in the sight of heaven why things happen the way they do. But he tips his hand to Job saying, Job, I'm not the one who's pulling all the strings here. There are forces of evil that I'm fighting against. He says about Behemoth, you couldn't take him on. Even the gods fear him. Only his maker can approach him, and even he uses a sword. So he's saying these are ferocious beasts that have to be tamed. And that means that this world's going to be somewhat of a chaotic place. We're caught in the crossfire of this cosmic warfare. And so in the end, he's saying to Job, Job, you don't know all that's going on here. Your friends don't know all that's going on here. But what you've got to know is that what you don't know. Know your ignorance. Know there's a whole lot more going on in creation in the spiritual realm that affects you, that, uh, that affects how things come to pass. But you never know about it. Just know this. I'm not the one pulling all the strings here. And so don't be charging me with wrongdoing. And Job's friends, don't be charging Job with wrongdoing. And this is the point of the book. We are ignorant human beings living in a very mysterious, unfathomably complex creation that's torn apart in war. And we don't see more than the uh, molecule on the tip of an almost infinite iceberg. We have very little understanding about anything. And see, if we forget all that we don't know and forget all the variables that affect things, We'll start charging God with everything, alleging God with everything. Or if we think that God's pulling all the strings and is just, we'll start judging other people. Oh, you're being punished for your sin. And the whole point of the book of Job is saying this. We're, if we remember our ignorance, we'll then not charge God with, when we won't judge God as Job did, and we won't be judging people as Job's friends did. And that's the point of the book of Job. Don't judge. Know what you don't know. Know what you don't know, which is almost everything. But what you do know, it's so important. The one thing we do know is this, what God reveals about himself, and he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. What, what we do know is that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross out of love for the very enemies who crucified him. What we do know is that while this world can be cruel, God is never cruel. While this world can dish out nightmares, God isn't behind the nightmares. While this world can, can take away precious loved ones, God isn't the one who takes, who takes away precious loved ones. While the world can, the world and Satan and demons and, and, and fallen human beings can dish a lot of crap your way, God isn't the crap dealer, okay? God is the life giver, praise God. He's on the side of the giving. Amen. But you won't know that by trying to discern the character of God from this, this war zone world we live in. You only know that by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And see, as we do that, whenever we mix up the muck of the world with the character of God, it, it pollutes our picture of God and therefore pollutes our relationship with God. And then when tragedy happens, we often operate the way Job did and we push God away. We think that he's the, the, the one taking our kids the one who's causing the disease or whatever. But if we understand the true character of God, dare to believe he's as beautiful as he's revealed to be in Christ. This resolve that. Then when tragedy happens, we can invite God in on it. 
knowing that he's on the side. Jesus says, I've come to give life and life to the full. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I come to give abundant life. God's always on the side of abundant life. Satan and demons and people, they can be on the side of kill, stealing, and destroying, but God's not the killer, the stealer, or the destroyer. He's the life giver who's pushing back on Leviathan and being off. The killer, the stealer, and the destroyer. So we invite him in, and he starts to bring life into our disaster. However dark it may be, however dark it may be, he begins to breathe life into that. And he's a master at bringing good out of evil and, and success out of failure and holiness out of sin. He's a master at bringing, creating a work of art out of the worst things that happened to us and that we, had, we might do to others if we just surrender to him. Be honest with him. Be honest. However dark you, a spot you may be in, however far from God you think you are, whatever terrible things you've done or have been done to you, if you just keep talking with God, keep honest with God, he has your heart, and he can begin to influence that heart and heal that heart and mend that heart and transform that heart. That's all he asks for is your, your innermost heart. And so we invite him in and watch him do. He promises to turn it all to our advantage. We may not see that until we, the, the kingdom is fully come, but we can know that he's at work for the good, never for the evil. And the final thing, folks, is that the best news is that we know that while this world right now, random things happen that affect us, we can never know why this kid's healed, why that kid's not healed, why that family was spared in a car wreck and that family was killed. We just got to say three so important words for Christians to learn. I don't know. I don't know. We've got to get very good at that. We don't know. We're merely humans. It might have something to do with what happened in the 13th century B.C. for all we know. You know, the world's so interrelated. We don't know. But what we do know is God. God is always on the side of life and good and beauty and health. And we bring that to the situation. And the good news is that it won't always be like this. Uh, this war zone world, this is, this is preparatory, this is preliminary. Uh, the promise of God is that the love of God will triumph in the end, and all who are on the side of that love will triumph with him. And then there'll be no more Leviathan and Behemoth and, and, and people getting caught in random nightmares like happened in this world. The hope of the New Testament isn't that everything is going wonderful now, because it's not. Like, and if you just believe in Jesus, well, then everything's going to be protected and all this kind of stuff. No, we have the same vulnerabilities as everyone else on this planet. The, good, the, the, the promise of God is that in the end, his love will win, and it will be more than worth it, incomparably worth it for all who stay true to him. Amen. That is the good news. And it's good news. All right. So when tragedy happens, please, everyone here in this message, I pray, do not say the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, not in that context, for sure. Uh, rather say the Lord gives. I'm sorry this was taken. And I don't know why. Maybe, who knows, spiritual, it's too complex. But I do know that God looks like Jesus Christ on the cross and then offer that to the person who's in the nightmare. The beauty of God that eventually heals all wounds, rights all wrongs. Praise God. As I close in prayer, I want to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come up here and, and, and pray with these folks. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not surrendered to him, I encourage you to do that this morning. Why wait? Just come up here and talk to these folks, and they'll tell you about what it's, uh, how to get started as the life of a disciple. Would you stand? And I just want to seal this on our hearts. Father, through the power of your Spirit, continue to purify our picture of you, to dare to believe you're as beautiful as you revealed in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be a people who don't ever indict others with self-serving theology, but rather humbly offer your love to all people in all situations, inviting you into every, every single uh, uh, situation of our life. And help us, God, to always keep the lines of communication honest and open with you, our loving Savior in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.